perhaps we should get the crash news out of the way so we can move on to the longer term trends. You know, there was already a crypto winter going on last year. It deepened through the summer and there had been some failures in the DeFi space in the algorithmic coin space and even in the stablecoin space because unfortunately more than one of these stablecoins was actually algorithmic. On the one hand, the conversation could be cryptocurrencies as a whole are not fit for purpose and they're just a fad. On the other hand, you look at something like Bitcoin, even something like Ethereum and a few others and you say, okay, these seem to have some relatively durable use cases. How do we explain that to those who come at this with some skepticism? Well, I think they should come at it with a lot of skepticism. Next thing's emergence of soulbound tokens, SBTs instead of NFTs, the non-transactable tokens. So we'll start with use cases for central bank digital currencies, and then we'll go to implementation, and then we'll go to what's happening on the scene. Welcome to the OrionX Download. This is a podcast where we discuss and simplify the big ideas in technology that are changing the world. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Orion X Download. This is episode 20, and we thought since the last one we did back in August of 22 was about cryptocurrencies, and a whole lot has happened since then, that we'd catch up there first, and then in future episodes, we'll cover other topics like system architecture and fusion energy and quantum computing and other good stuff. So with me, as always, is Steve Perrineau, my colleague who is deep into all of the above and I try to keep up with. Hi, Steve. How are you? Hi, Shaheen. Nice to be here. Yeah, definitely. I want to tell our audience is that what you're about to hear is not, nor is it intended to be financial, legal, or really any other kind of advice. Your mileage varies. Take care. Be careful. All of the above. Now, last time we talked, we covered your eighth crypto super report. We talked about Bitcoin's valuation models that there are several out there and and you have one. We talked about Ethereum going to proof of stake, NFTs, DeFi, central bank cryptocurrencies, some of the regulations that were starting to be more and more visible. And then I just want to remind everybody that if you go back to November 21, there was another episode. And then December 20th, we had a pretty popular episode, that one, which was a short history of crypto and continues to be pretty valid. So if you're interested in this stuff, please do look it up. So with that, what's happened since last August, Steve, that we want to talk about? Where would you go first? Yes. Well, perhaps we should get the crash news out of the way (laughs) so we can move (laughs) on to the longer term trends. You know, there was already a crypto winter going on last year and it deepened through the summer already into our last discussion. And there had been some failures in the DeFi space, in the algorithmic coin space, and even in the stable coin space, because unfortunately, more than one of these stable coins was actually algorithmic. So they didn't really have you know, commercial paper or treasury bills or other assets of any substantial amount backing it, they were just trying to back it with automated trading systems. So we saw the problems with Luna and Celsius and Terra starting back in the spring. But obviously, the big crash that everybody heard about was in November with Sam Bankman Fried. Some people refer to him as Sam Bankster Broad. And uh, he is sitting with an ankle bracelet, you know, in his parents' home in Palo Alto. 
which sits on Stanford University land, as it turns out, and that complicates all of the bail proceedings. But he had an exchange called FTX Exchange, and what makes it interesting is he also had a venture capital hedge fund type, more on the hedge fund side, trading operation. And money was flowing back and forth between Alameda Research and the FTX exchange that should not have been. And it appears like customer funds were taken and loaned as well. And he had his own token called FTT. And Binance, which is the world's largest exchange, had helped prop him up, really. They had bought a lot of these FTT tokens that were kind of the native token of the FTX exchange used for you know cross-trading purposes. And Binance was looking at maybe increasing their investment. And then they did some due diligence and they decided this is not a good idea. And they sold all of their FTT tokens. They did that during the first week of November. And that really caused everything to fall apart. And by November 10th, the Bahamian authorities had frozen the accounts of FTX. And it was not long after when both the FBI and SEC got involved and the Bahamian authorities turned him over to the FBI. So that has to go to trial. We'll see all how all that happens. But, you know, the scale of the apparent fraud here is many billions of dollars. Recently, they said they put their hands on $5 billion worth of assets. You know, they have a new CEO since sometime in November. And that CEO says it's the worst set of books he's ever seen in his life. (laughs) Yeah. So now I have a question. With the meltdown that we've seen, and with some notable folks who believe this meltdown is going to continue, that the market is fundamentally not as regulated as it should be, and it's all over the map, and some of this activity is not sufficiently well understood. So we got to kind of have that as one piece of the puzzle. The other piece is of the 20 plus thousand coins that are out there, really everybody agrees that the vast majority are not going to make it, and that you start with Bitcoin at one end, And then you really don't have to march that far down the list before you draw the line and you say, okay, from here on out, if you are going to be a player, you better have a really valid use case and really good adoption and such. So on the one hand, the conversation could be that cryptocurrencies as a whole are not fit for purpose and they're just a fad and we know it's been 10 years, but it's not going to last. On the other hand, you look at something like Bitcoin, even something like Ethereum and a few others, and you say, okay, these seem to have some relatively durable use cases. How do we square that? How do we explain that to those who come at this with some skepticism? Well, I think they should come at it with a lot of skepticism. I just checked there are about 50 coins out there that have market caps above $1 billion. Everything that's with else, a B, right? $1 billion. That's with a B. That's with a B. So unicorns are larger. That's interesting, you know, that you could create 50 such unicorns during this short history, which began in 2009. But a number of those are stable coins. So in a essence, they're some sort of money market fund, right? A digital currency mm-hmm. version of a money market fund. Ethereum obviously matters a lot because it enables smart contracts and it's been the platform from which many other coins, in fact, most other coins that are created were created on top of the Ethereum platform with the RC20. And then there are, you know, coins that are just looking to various niches. I mean, Dogecoin was created as a joke, Hmm. but one could say at least it has something going for it, which it actually does proof of work. So in our latest ninth 
crypto super 500 list, we're down to two coins, Bitcoin and right. Dogecoin, because what we follow is things that use supercomputer levels of computational cycles. So Dogecoin ends up being that, given that Ethereum has shifted to proof of stake and abandoned all their mining. I suspect most of these 50 are not going to amount to much either. Right. And it just gets more and more speculative as you go you know, further down that list. And we'll just see them, many of those just fade away or just continue to, to be nearly worthless. You know, the question then becomes more of, I think, regulation and government oversight. And we see that problem has particularly arisen for in two areas, as far as, say, the U.S. government is concerned. One is exchanges and FTX being the best known that's being pursued by two different agencies. But the SEC has also pursued some other exchanges. Either, you know, you have to provide more information or we might file a case against you, et cetera. And then they have the responsibility for regulating securities creation. And one could argue that the vast bulk of these coins are in fact some sort of security offering from some sort of a company. Whether they have a foundation or not, they've got some group of insiders, they create a coin, they make an offering. Mm. Now, in many cases, they elected not to offer to U.S. retail investors. Maybe they didn't offer in the U.S. at all, or maybe they didn't offer to uh, non-accredited investors that you said only accredited investors could subscribe. That makes it a little easier for them to make it past the SEC. The SEC has almost doubled their enforcement actions in 2022 relative to 2021. So they're trying to get on top of it. There's been a lot of outcry from Congress about stable coins. And given the failures that happened during 2022, the stable coins are trying to show that A, they're audited, B, that you know they have what's called proof of reserves. And right. see those reserves are decent quality. And it might be commercial paper, or it might be Chinese commercial paper on Chinese real estate, which might be somewhat lower quality, right? Mm -hmm. So all that stuff needs to be audited. And there's a move in the industry and there are incentives for them to want to do that if they want to attract uh, more customers to their stablecoin. So I'd say stablecoins, coin offerings that look like equity offerings, we're seeing more attention from the SEC. And that includes retrospect. I would not rule out the possibility that the SEC someday would bring an enforcement action against Ethereum mm -hmm. because it was widely offered in the U.S. and it was in general terms like an equity offering and it was not registered with the SEC. So that would be really big news if something happened there. Of course, by moving to proof of stake, then they kind of confirmed that they are an equity offering, you know, in the long run, even though they were doing proof of work before, they, they had a pre-mine. So even with their initial offering, even though they were doing proof of work, they could be looked at as an equity offering. Mm -hmm. But more generally, I think regulation, and we've seen that the attitude in the U.S. is we're not going to ban it, but we need to regulate it better, mm -hmm. particularly the exchanges. We have ETFs. They're tied to futures markets. We have a regulated futures market. And Bitcoin itself is being viewed as a commodity by the CFTC. And SEC seems okay with that. Gary Gensler seems okay with that at the SEC. And I think uh, federal government in general does as well. The IRS, you know, views it as an asset, basically, that you report capital gains on. So the U.S. posture is, is that in broad strokes. And I think, though, that the regulatory authorities in the U.S., Europe, and elsewhere do need to clean up the excesses here. 
And also they're incentivized to do that because they're going to start thinking about introducing their own stable coins as CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. And if they do that, they want to make sure that if there are stable coins denominated in dollars or euro, that those are well regulated, just like money market funds need to be well regulated. Right, right. So if you go back to like why cryptocurrencies, you know, one answer is that there are some gaps and problems with traditional fintech financial technology and tools that need to be solved. And some of them in principle could be solved in other ways, but aren't. And some of them really do benefit from a new class of technology. And there comes cryptocurrencies. Would you see it that way? Do you make that similar kind of a point or? Well, in part, but I think that's not a large enough lens. You know, the invention of Bitcoin was to invent a non-government currency and a currency that's not issued in debt. So all of the governmental currencies, all of the fiat around the world are issued as debt. And the, the new money supply comes when the commercial banking system creates new loans. So whether it's paper or whether it's digits in your checking account, it's initially issued in the form of debt. And there's no asset backing it other than, you know, the government's taxing powers, its military, you know, its central bank as a system. But it's not like the central bank holds reserve assets like gold or anything. So what you have is, is, so that's long gone since 1971 and for U.S. citizens started in 1933. There was partial gold backing up until 71. So the ones that are proof of work are issued as assets. And the asset is the energy investment to create them in the proof of work process. And they're private. You know, Bitcoin in particular has no CEO, no marketing department, no foundation that really has any direct say. It's actually got a tripartite system of governance mm-hmm, right? with a legislative function, an executive function, which rests with the miners that commit transactions to the ledger and a judiciary function in the form of its full nodes. When you look at the ones that are created with other algorithms, other consensus algorithms, which are mostly proof of stake, that's by and far the most common one, some form of Byzantine fault tolerance with proof of stake voting of some sort. Mm-hmm. That really is like share issuance. You know, you've got some people that hold shares. And if you hold enough shares, you can vote those shares and commit transactions as validators. And so if we look at the Ethereum model, if you have 32 Ethereum and you stake them, then you can validate those. And then you can earn some yield on as a result of that, which is essentially, you know, some fee revenue. So that is still not government currency that's private, not public, but it's more like corporate money, corporate currency. Mm -hmm. The extreme example would be airline miles, right? They're sort of a form of corporate currency. These have more utility than airline miles because you can move them onto an exchange and you can trade them and you can move them into other currencies. So this is a Forex style aspect to it. So the number of use cases is large. It's almost anything in fintech. It's potentially anything in supply chains where you've got multiple parties. People look at blockchain there and the currency side may exist, but it may be kind of deprecated. It may not be that important. Maybe some tokens trade around that have nominal value. You know, we've had the ICOs, which are new coin offerings. We've had the exchange offerings where you have a token that resides on an exchange and is used as kind of the intermediary 
in that world. What we haven't seen as much is the staking of things like real estate and real estate titles. There's been some of that. That gets into the whole identity issue. There's some identity tokens out there. And then obviously we have the NFTs, which have been most popular in the areas of of the arts and entertainment. If there's a use case that does this with crypto, could I accomplish the same thing without crypto? And sometimes you could. You already are accomplishing a lot of things with fiat. The world runs on fiat. Right. People send money to each other. It's really a question of better, faster, cheaper. Mm. Can I send the money faster? Can I send it with lower fees? Can I send it with fewer humans touching the thing? You know, so is it better somehow? And if we look at the SWIFT system, for example, if you want to wire money overseas, it can take several days to settle. And it's going to go through several banks, potentially. Intermediate correspondent banks, large banks that connect to other banks. So if you want to send from a small bank in the US to a small bank in Germany, it could go through multiple other banks or five banks. And every bank, there's a human in the loop. If you want to send Bitcoin to somebody in Germany, there's no banks. There's no human in the loop, right? And you do it within an hour and you get six confirmations. So, Mm -hmm. and you can do it at scale. So you can do any amount in an hour, anywhere in the globe to anybody that, you know, you have some sort of known relationship with or an email. Right, right. Address. Another example I make is like super tiny microtransactions that are simply not economically viable to do with fiat because just the cost of transaction. Whereas if you digitize it completely and eliminate all the unnecessary steps and touches, you really could transfer minuscule amounts essentially for free. And that would be a necessary technology to open up what I call thing-to-thing payments when you have basically Internet of Thing connected devices talking and paying each other. That's another use case. Absolutely. And that technology already exists and it's called Lightning and it's a second layer to Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And there are other ways that you could, you know, there could be other technology implementations. Yeah. In general, I kind of like the idea that digital currency by virtue of being digital is also programmable. It's also therefore optimizable. And therefore you could match the weight of the protocol to the size of the transaction and not have unnecessary weight. If you're just buying a cup of coffee, then maybe a couple of little touches are enough to approve it. But if you're transferring a big amount of money, then maybe you do want some serious proof of work to back it up. Correct. And Lightning in particular allows you to buy a cup of coffee. The fees are extremely low. It could be a few sats. And a sat Mm -hmm. is 100 millionth of a Bitcoin. So it's a fraction of a penny. And So that can happen instantly because it sits on the second layer. It doesn't have to commit to the blockchain right away. It does that eventually. Just like when you use your credit card, you don't get your statement until the end of the month, right? Right. So, you know, that's a time deferred payment. Eventually, it comes back to your particular account and it gets settled. So we talked about a bunch of things. Let's, you just mentioned Bitcoin. So let's do a health check update on Bitcoin. Last we talked... It was sort of in the middle of kind of languishing for a while. Since the beginning of this year, it's up quite markedly. So what's going on there and how do you see that? I see that from two lenses. One is the macro backdrop, which has not been favorable. And I don't want to get into too long a discussion, but if you look at the combination of growth and inflation and whether those are trending up or trending down, inflation trending down, for example, is not so good for Bitcoin. 
And then there's the whole issue of liquidity and interest rates. So the Fed has been driving interest rates up rapidly. Interest rates went from zero for short term in the space of one year, mostly during 2022 to now almost 5% at the short end. And that makes a big difference because Bitcoin doesn't pay interest, but now they seem to be heading towards the end of that. The Fed was also withdrawing liquidity with quantitative tightening by selling off some of their bond portfolio and their books. And so liquidity tightness in the market affected both the stock market and Bitcoin. And Bitcoin tends to correlate with NASDAQ, but to be even more volatile than NASDAQ, for example. So it, it trades like a high beta tech stock. What's your valuation model saying these days? Well, my fair valuation, I have multiple models, but my fair valuation is, you know, above 30,000 in the middle of the 30 to $40,000 range. And so, but, you know, the volatility is one standard deviation is a factor of 1.7. So if it's trading at 20,000, it's only one standard deviation away from, from fair value. Right. And right. That, on the upside is, you know, you've, you've got the corresponding potential benefit. So, you know, a month ago, it was in the 16,000s. Today, it's almost 24,000. It's gone up 40% during January. And I think in large part, that is because it looks like the Fed trajectory is softening and that they're going to do, you know, instead of 75 basis point increases in the rate at the short end, then they dropped it to 50. Now they're dropping it to 25. And people are seeing the end of the road up around 5% at the short end. Mm -hmm. And so the market, the market did, stock market did well in January as well. Right. We talked about CBDC, central bank digital currencies. Let's talk a little bit more about what's going on there. So China, of course, is the most notable and most significant play there. But there are like murmurs that other countries are considering it, including the US. What's the latest there? And actually, as you get going, let's also talk about why would anybody want to do central bank digital currencies? Why not just use dollars that have been substantially digitized anyway? Okay, so we'll start with use cases for central bank digital currencies, and then we'll go to implementation, and then we'll go to you know what's happening on the scene. The use cases are several. One use case would be for more direct distribution of money to the population. And a lot of this happened with the COVID pandemic mm. and the burden fell on the IRS. Well, not everybody files tax returns, right? Now, most right. people have social security numbers. You know, there were methods set up so that payments could be made. But if you had a central bank digital currency and anybody could download a wallet, then they could have a direct account with their bank if they have a bank and it could come through their bank, or they could have potentially even a direct account with the Federal Reserve or the central bank in their country. So payments along the lines of emergencies, pandemics, or potentially even universal basic income style payments is one use case. Another is more rapid settlement. The ACH system is still kind of creaky in the U.S., the automated check clearing system where the banks, you know, clear checks through the Federal Reserve. And the Fed is is looking at overhauling that, but CBDCs could play a role there. Certainly, it would give the central banks a view into all kinds of microeconomic data. And, you know, potentially they could see what was happening with every transaction, right? Now, I expect in the U.S. that they will choose to anonymize that data and they'll have to maintain privacy of individuals, but it will allow them 
to have a lot more microeconomic data around purchases in particular categories, and that could play into tracking the CPI, tracking components of the GDP, tracking you know how the money supply is being used, et cetera. What other use cases? Certainly international transfers, speeding those up. I talked about SWIFT and how slow that is. And if you're a country that's being locked out of SWIFT, like the Russians have <laughs> now been kicked out, you know, you might want to have a central bank digital currency of your own to get around sanctions issues. That's one of the motivators for the Chinese, Iwan. They've had a lot of pilot projects. They are rolling it out. It's not ubiquitous, but they're doing it in larger and larger stages. They had another activity around Chinese New Year's in the past week or two, and they have their Belt and Road Initiative. I think they will look at trying to use it for export-import foreign trade purposes as well. The biggest question around implementations, and people seem to be looking at commercial blockchain implementations that are already out there, like Hedera and so forth. IBM's got one that built on that. The really, the biggest question is, how do you involve the commercial banking system? Do you give people accounts directly with the central bank, with the Federal Reserve, or do you have a tiered system like we have today? People do not hold accounts with the Federal Reserve today. You can hold an account with the U.S. Treasury in order to purchase Treasury bonds, but you don't hold accounts with the Federal Reserve. Only banks do that. So the only way to get money is through the banking system, or you get a check from a government agency and take it to some sort of payment processor. So the most likely outcome, I think, in the U.S., and I would think in Europe as well, particularly given all the nationalities there within the euro, is a hierarchical system where you have wholesale money and retail money. And so the implementation would be through the existing commercial banking system. Otherwise, you disrupt the commercial banks because you disintermediate a lot of their deposits. Developments, India has announced that they want to do a CBDC. So that's a piece of news. Significant. And very significant. They're, as of this week or next, <laughs> or next month, the largest nation in the world in terms of population. And they're the fifth largest economy now. Nigeria has announced that they're going to do a central bank, a digital currency at some point. They were having some kind of a banking crisis recently. Well, as an intermediate stage to that, they're doing something that India did a few years ago, which is they're recalling uh -huh. uh, large denomination banknotes. And the problem is there are not enough of the new large denomination banknotes floating around. And so their big crushes at the ATM machines and so forth is big, a lot of chaos right now trying to implement that. They'll get it sorted out, but it may take a while. They've had to extend their date a couple of weeks. And in fact, Bitcoin is now trading at double the, the U.S. spot price over there as people wow. are desperate to because there's demand there. Mm -hmm. money. So that's another use case for Bitcoin is if you've got an unstable currency, you know, like Lebanon and Nigeria, places like that. Now, the equation in such matters is always different for the U.S. What would the evaluation of a CBDC be like in the U.S.? Because we already have a half a dozen stable coins that are performing similar tasks. And why would the Fed want to get in themselves rather than just Right. use existing ones? Well, in fact, the Fed will do it at least at the wholesale level mm. because it will bring them efficiency. There are over 4,000 banks in the U.S. So, you know, all of that has to be cleared overnight, right? <laughs> Every night. And that's why we have a reserve banking system. That and, of course, to protect in crises. And then there, you know, those were the original missions of central banks. But then their requirements grew to 
trying to nurture the economy and keep unemployment high. So I think we will, down the road, not quickly, see at least a wholesale CBDC. And then at the retail level, it might just be private. And so that could be existing stable coins tied to the US dollar and regulated like money market funds are regulated. And if that happens, for sure, the banks will get in there and will issue their own stable coins that are firmly linked to the US dollar. All right. So a couple of other topics and then we can conclude. The next thing really is emergence of soul bound tokens, SBTs instead of NFTs, the non-transactable tokens that are presumably permanently attached to a single wallet. And let's talk a little bit about that and what uses that might have as a concept, as a technology. I think it's, and I have not read up that much on this, but it looks like it is a way to have floating identity in the crypto world. Mm. You know, so the soul is you and you create an identity for yourself. It's not tied to any of your government identity. It's not tied to your passport or anything else, but you create some sort of unique identity and then you can carry that with you into the NFT world, into the gaming world, into crypto exchange worlds. If you're trading things that allow you not to do KYC or you could do KYC and still have that that identity as well. So right now, it seems like the NFT world is where a lot of activity is going on. Yeah. So that kind of leads me into the next topic, and that's Web3 and Metaverse. And sometimes I see these SBTs as helping with self-sovereign identity, SSI. That's another technology out there to try to have decentralized self-owned identity in a way that is verifiable. And that could be kind of a bottom layer of a metaverse, which wants to be a digital replica of real world and therefore very difficult to do without simplification. And then a payment system could be on top of that. And now you've got two major layers of metaverse done, and those would be enabled by crypto and the decentralization approach that it espouses. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a very good characterization and description. All right, very good. Anything we haven't covered? No, you know, I'll just go back to our mining ninth crypto super 500 list. And as I say, things consolidated. At one time, we had five or six different coins that would make it onto the list. And that list as a supercomputer list. It requires proof of work, which means hash rate. It requires a lot of hash rate. And the Bitcoin space, we're now up to 300 exahashes. And as Ethereum shifted to proof of stake, their hash rate went away. In the last right. list, they were responsible for $9 billion worth of proof of work mining, and that's gone. And Bitcoin in the last list in June was also of the same magnitude, about $9 billion. In the latest list in November, it was about $7 billion because of the decrease in price. And the only other entry was Dogecoin because it does do proof of work. And Elon likes to hype it from time to time. And in fact, he did make a suggestion that Twitter is finally going to do some payments. And so Dogecoin went up because <laughs> they figure, okay, he'll pick he Dogecoin might favor that, yeah. as one of those. And they were responsible for about one third of a billion of mining as a, the run rate in Dogecoin. So that's where we're at. Given the price increase, it's about a $10 billion annual economic value market in cryptocurrency mining these days. The miners have had a lot of trouble. So there's been consolidation. There have been some bankruptcies. Some of them have had to sell operations to other miners. So, you know, the strong hands have gained against the weak hands. And I think now with the price recovery, they're going to be okay. 
if the price stays up here. Excellent. Excellent. You know, obviously, we continue to think this area is a critical piece of the technology landscape that we can't afford not to follow. And it could enable a whole bunch of new capabilities. So we're going to continue to do that. So thank you, Steve. Thank you all for being here. Once again, a quick reminder that everything you heard, none of it is financial or legal advice or any other kind of advice. And until next time, thank you very much. Take care. 